Welcome to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog guardians. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm a certified professional dog trainer and I take my 10 years of training experience and I share easy to implement dog training advice with an emphasis on kindness and compassion. Welcome. I'm so excited to share more. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. I think you all are really going to enjoy the perspective we share with you tonight. We are not going to be talking about training dogs, but we are going to be talking about the same principles we use to train dogs, but how we can use those with other animals. So before I let Jackie introduce herself and tell you a little bit more about her, I wanted to just tell you all that we connected over dogs, right? We were talking about dog behavior, and then we kind of got talking about how Jackie has trained other species, and I just could not pass up an opportunity to share that information with all of you. So without further ado, Jackie, do you want to introduce yourself for everybody? Yeah. Hey, Rachel. I'm Jackie Mobley. I own and run uh, Happy Trails Dog Solutions uh, just north of Asheville, North Carolina. I got my start in training animals with great apes, specifically orangutans, bonobos, and chimpanzees. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to talk all about it. Okay. So tell us a little bit more. So tell us, tell us how this even started. I think most people probably are like, how do you even like get involved with training great apes, great apes though? Like, how does that even begin? Um, I was going to college in Des Moines, Iowa, and I was a pre-vet major and I was flailing a little bit. Um, and I, I got a volunteer opportunity at a place called Great Ape Trust, which was a cognitive research facility there. It was all voluntary, non-invasive research. Um, The Bonobos, they did uh, language study research, which was super cool. And the orangutans, they were doing all kinds of cognitive research. So um, the second I laid eyes on an orangutan, I was pretty much smitten and hooked and changed my major almost immediately to psychology and primatology, which is what I have my degree in now. I got a job there. Um, I was a research assistant for a little bit, and then I got a job as a caregiver. Um, I worked there for about five years. And then um, the orangutans that I worked with for many different complicated reasons needed to find new homes. A few of them went to a zoo, and a couple of them were not good candidates for a zoo. So they went to a sanctuary, an awesome sanctuary in Florida, and I moved with them. So I went to the sanctuary in Florida um, called Center for Great Apes, and they rescue pet and entertainment industry apes. Um, So a lot of very complicated backgrounds with these guys. Um, And I worked there for about four years-ish. And part of being caregiver is is training. Can you just share a little bit more about like what, obviously animal care, but can you share a little bit more about what some of your training duties were at the trust? Like, did you work on teaching the animals like skills specifically for the cognitive research? Um, The cognitive research wasn't necessarily skill-based. We did do some language studies with the orangutans, just some basic stuff. They needed to be trained on uh, touchscreen computers and that kind of thing. But a lot of the research that we did on the orangs was observational. 
Um, so a lot of my duties as a research assistant was more observing and note-taking and data entry and record-keeping and writing papers and that kind of stuff. Um, the actual training that I did there was almost entirely husbandry training. Um, and that is the case also at the sanctuary that I worked at, too. Um, all of these apes, you know, it's protected contact. Um, we were separated by two by four steel mesh at the trust and two by two steel mesh at the uh, center. So the difference between that is one, they can kind of stick their arms out uh, almost to their elbows and one, they can stick their fingers out. So um, husbandry training is really important so that we can do examinations and medical treatments without uh, requiring anesthesia and that kind of thing. And as you can imagine with protected contact, Positive reinforcement is really the only way you can do that. You can't manipulate the animal. Um, you can't, you know, like a dog, you can't cheat and say sit and push their butt down. You really have to learn to, you know, capture behaviors and shape and lure and use targets and markers and all of that good stuff that we always talk about in positive reinforcement dog training. Uh, it's really similar. Oh my God. I love this perspective, Jackie. I love this perspective because that was never an option, right? It was never a like, well, should we just like take a shortcut and do it this way? That's not the the way that it works when you're working with one very large and sized animals, but two animals that you're interacting through with a barrier. Right. Exactly. You can't just throw a choke chain on them and tell them what to do. You really have to have a conversation with them and, and convince them that, um, they want to cooperate and um, build a relationship with them and build trust with them. It was all positive reinforcement. So we used mostly food as rewards. We used grapes and raisins were kind of, and jello jigglers were kind of our go-to. So much um, getting like the, the intel on like what they wanted as reinforcers. That's amazing. Yeah. So yeah, grapes and raisins, raisins, especially that would be kind of like your, your kibble in your training pouch. And then we went all the way up. They're really into sugar. So um, you can, if you really needed a high value reinforcement, we would go to the chocolate frosting and that kind of stuff. If we really needed some convincing Um, and a lot of continuous reinforcement for some of these behaviors um, in, in the form of juice or Gatorade or something like that. So. Oh my God, that is incredible. Okay. So I want to just circle back to like, like your your role as a research assistant because I'm sure that that probably opened up a pretty amazing learning opportunity for you in the the body language and and understanding the individual animal because you had so much time to observe and all of the data you were collecting can you speak to that just a little bit absolutely um the time that I spent as a research assistant like I said was very observational so it's really interesting to watch the apes together and how they interacted, how they interact with the environment. Um, It became really important to me to know how they interact with their environment in terms of an enrichment standpoint too, so that you can put the enrichment, you know, there are orangutans are arboreal creatures. So if you put their enrichment all over the floor, uh, that's great. But what you want them to do is use those naturalistic behaviors of climbing and swinging and that kind of thing. So I really liked to 
watch what they did when they were bored or playing or, you know, trying to figure out how to entertain themselves um, so that I could encourage those types of behaviors with enrichment. And I had never heard the term enrichment in terms of dog training until recently, but that is a thing we've been doing in exotics and zookeeping for a long, long time. And I'm so happy to, to hear that people are enriching their dogs in their houses because every animal needs that. Oh my God. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's, it's one of those that like, it's become really popular thanks to social media. And like, that's one of the, the good things about social media is that like more people are enriching their dogs lives. But I guess to circle back to your point, Jackie, is that like, that has been standard protocol in exotic animal care in zoos and other facilities for a really long time. And so has husbandry care. Right. And I think that like that to me is so fascinating about the dog world that like I feel like in the last couple of years, there's been this like huge push towards cooperative care and consent and care and stuff in the dog world. But I have learned so much from like observing how it was done with other species right before we translated it to dogs. So, Jackie, can you talk just a little bit more about like some of the specific behaviors you worked on training for the husbandry care? Like, were you having them like stand up, like stick their fingers? Can you just tell us a little bit more of those specifics? Yeah, absolutely. There was um, behaviors that we would train for examination and there were behaviors that we would train for procedures. Um, So for, for examinations, you know, um, can you stick your fingers out and can I manipulate them? Can you stick your toes out? Can you show me your belly, your chest? Can you turn around in a circle and press your back up against the mesh? We would have them lie back and scoot towards the mesh so we could look at their little private parts. We would um, have them present their ears, all of that stuff, so that if there was something going on with them, we could you know, have them open their mouth and we could look in and move their tongue around. And I mean, we didn't stick our fingers in their mouths, but um, that kind of thing so that we could see what was really going on with them. And we would do that almost daily um, with just, just showing us their body parts, because I think that that's where it really starts. And that is kind of like, basic handling in dogs, you know, can I touch you all over? Can I touch your paws? Can I flip your ears inside out? That kind of stuff. We also did um, training for more procedural stuff. Um, We trained voluntary blood draws. Um, So they would present their arms and hold it for continuous reinforcement. And we would actually get a stick in the vein um, and be able to draw blood from a lot of these apes, which it, it was not too long ago that they would have had to put these apes under anesthesia in order to get that sample and send it off, which is stressful and potentially dangerous for an animal, uh, especially an orangutan, and especially if you don't have any blood work on them <laughs> before anesthesia. Right, right. And I think that, Jackie, that's something that I feel like as a whole society just kind of takes for granted with dogs. We just like, we think that dogs will just let us like handle them and we can do all of that. And I think that 
oftentimes we forget, like that's probably a skill we should actually teach and train from the beginning instead of just expecting it. Right. But in the setting that you were in, you never, it never, no one in the whole facility was like, oh, we're just going to be able to do this. Like, no, we actually have to teach this. We have to train it. So can you speak just a little bit more? So you were saying that like, it was a daily occurrence. Can you speak a little bit more about like, maintaining behaviors, bringing behaviors to fluency? Was it really just like a practice thing and making sure you had consistent reinforcers that they actually wanted to work for? It really depended on the apes, um, especially at the sanctuary. So we had apes that came from an entertainment background, let's say, that were really used to being trained and really excited about training and would try to figure out what you wanted them to do and we're playing the game, you know, um, they would offer behaviors all the time as kind of a, a begging thing. They all the time. And, um, then there were apes that were rescued from pet situations who had been severely neglected or kept in a small cage for over a decade, um, that had never been touched that had, you know, nails growing, out and around into their feet and stuff. So um, it really, really depended on the apes. The ones that were good at it, it was kind of like, well, let's, let me sit down with you for a few minutes and we'll run through this stuff real quick and we'll trim your nails up and, and move on. Um, And then other ones, I would sit for a long training session and just work on, can I touch your toes when the, nail clippers are present and that kind of, you know, so a lot of desensitization um, and stuff like that. So it really depended on the apes and we really prioritized uh, apes that needed that kind of training in order to not get knocked down, um, which is a term we use for uh, anesthesia. Um, so yeah, nail, nails that are getting too long, animals that had were showing signs and symptoms of illness, we would um, prioritize them for blood draw and a voluntary injection. So we would have them present their shoulders and we would practice with blunted or capped needles. Um, we did, let's see, cardiac Doppler, stethoscope training, ultrasound, um, all kinds of stuff. So that we could give them a really thorough diagnostic exam without any anesthesia. Wow. And like, Jackie, it's so funny, right? Like I asked this question and I'm like, of course it depends, right? Like, of course it depends on the animal's learning history. Of course it depends on their early life experience, right? Like all of those things matter no matter what the animal it is, right? Like we have to take all of those things into account. Let me ask a question about some of the animals who came from like entertainment. So I don't think we need to get into the ethics of entertainment, but that's fascinating to me that like they had more experience training in the entertainment world. That's obviously so that people could use them for, could we say financial gain? I'm not really sure if that's the appropriate term here, but that to me is interesting, right? That like they did actually have more experience with training just because they needed them to do things for it to be worth it in the entertainment purposes. Oh, absolutely. And it varied anywhere from really goofy, silly behaviors 
to just having the capacity to uh, cooperate and the ability to follow directions really easily and stuff like that. Um, you know, um, we can really quick get into the ethics of it, that these apes are bred into captivity for entertainment. Um, and as soon as they hit adolescence, they are too big to handle and, and they are usually dumped at roadside zoos or taken to somewhere like this sanctuary, which is a, a nonprofit that um, just does what they can uh, for these guys. But it is never a good idea to see an ape <laughs> in a movie. And uh, I can say that one pretty definitively, I think, oh as far God. as that. Yeah, that, yeah. That, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm so glad you bring this up, Jackie, because, you know, this is something that, like, obviously my experience training other animals is limited, right? I've worked with dogs and wolves, but that's a very similar story at the wolf sanctuary that I work at, right? Like a lot of these dogs were bred for pet homes. And when they hit adolescence, people are like, excuse me, I can't live with this dog. Well, wolf dog, right? And that's when they're dumped at the shelters. It's like a very similar timeline and trajectory, right? Except for wolves probably are not getting as big as some of the great apes are. Yeah, and great apes live to be 50 plus years. So they're using them for six years, and then they live the rest of their lives uh, who knows where. So luckily, um, we have sanctuaries like the Center for Great Apes in Florida that are able to take these guys and give them the best life they can uh, for the rest of their lives. That's that's their mission. Right, right. And there's clearly a need for it, right? Like, that's why they exist and continue to do what they do. Okay, so, Jackie, I, I, I know that you said that you followed some of the apes. Can you tell that? Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about those individuals? Yeah, I can. Um, so, like I said, a few of them went to a zoo from that place in Iowa, and two of them were not cut out for zoos. Um, one was an older female that came from a really rough entertainment background. Um, she worked as an entertainer in Las Vegas and was trucked around in an old Vegas shows. And so she is, her name is Poppy. She's a Poppy. wonderful friend of mine that I just visited. Um, and yeah, like I said, she, I think she's about 52 years old now. Um, and so she just had had it really rough um, and was a little bit older. And the sanctuary life just seemed a little bit more her style. She lives alone at the sanctuary. We usually try to get everybody into social groups. But orangutans in particular are more solitary in the wild. Um, and Poppy just prefers it that way. So we think of it as her retirement. She can't. And see other apes. She can be um, have contact through mesh with other apes, but she's not into it. She's not into all the excitement of being in with everybody else. She gets lots of attention and enrichment from the caregivers. And to speak to resilience in general, I mean, Poppy has had it the absolute worst. And I won't get into the gory details, but I've never met such a trusting individual after going through all of that. I don't think that I would ever trust a human again after going through what she did. And uh, Poppy and I are great friends, <laughs> even after all of that. 
Oh my God, Jenny, I could cry. It makes me just, it really makes my heart swoon knowing that everyone on her team recognized that while yes, like they can be social species, Poppy actually is an individual and she would really be much happier living alone in her own enclosure. Like I just, I think that that's so beautiful. Just like honoring the individual and what's going to be best for her. Yeah, she's so happy. And every time I go visit her, she just looks so great and relaxed. And she's just soaking up the Florida sun down there in her retirement. It's awesome. Um, okay, so can I ask a question really quickly on that? So yeah. can you just give the listeners a little bit more perspective on um, maybe some of the differences in like what it would be like to be Poppy in a zoo versus being Poppy in a sanctuary? I think there would be a little bit more uh, rigidity in general, um, there's a lot of pressure on zoos to get everybody out on exhibit um, on time. Their enrichment tends to be a little bit more strict. It needs to be naturalistic looking and all of that kind of stuff. We at the sanctuary would give them um, all kinds of stuff, it, you know, anything that was safe for them to have um, just so that we could keep their minds engaged. Um, and in a zoo, it is more targeted at keeping the enclosure natural looking. Right. So, um, you know, Poppy, uh, I mean, we do need to get them outside so that we can clean inside, but Poppy has a lot more of a relaxed schedule and can kind of dictate what she wants to do during her day a little bit more. Oh my God. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Like, I think that that's something that like, I obviously didn't have a lot of perspective on, right? Like that makes a lot of sense in in that department. So how long have you known Poppy? Oh man. I have known Poppy probably. uh, I don't know what year she came to Great Ape Trust, but we moved them in about 2012, I think. So I've known her since 2010. Maybe. Oh my God. 2009, okay. 10, something like that. Okay. And then you were able to see her. Did you see her today or very recently you saw her? I saw her yesterday. Yeah. And we, and now that I don't work there, I can relax and hang out and she loves to have her hair brushed. So we, I just hung out and brushed her hair for basically hours. <laughs> oh my God. Right. So like you literally just caught up with an old friend. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. <laughs> oh my god I love it I love it so much okay so um okay so tell us more about some of the other individuals that you've been able to connect with and bond with over the years uh, so the other one that I moved down with her name is Allie and she's a little bit younger but she is uh partially paralyzed um her um from the waist down she's almost entirely paralyzed and her hands are fisted due to a neurological or neurologic disease. Um, she, again, super resilient individual. And so she came to the sanctuary, uh, with Poppy and me and, and actually, um, one of my favorite things I did at the sanctuary was help introduce her to a big male, a big cheek patter, because despite her disability, she wanted to be in with a big boy and everybody was pretty nervous about it because she's not fast, you know? And so we picked out a sweet guy and we put them together with mesh in between them. And they were, they were 
they were in love. And so we did a very, very careful introduction and she has been with him ever since. And that's been a long, long time. <laughs> okay. And then is Allie an orangutan also? Yes. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. So I think th- this is something that like, personally, I just want some, some more info on. So obviously like when you're working on introductions, you're doing a lot of management and stuff, probably a similar way that we would try dogs that we didn't know. Right. So like you did use a physical barrier and you took it slow. Can you just give us a little bit more insight into that? Yeah, it is a lot of observation. Um, we do what's called a howdy, which means we put just mesh in between them. Apes that don't know each other at all. We usually have two, two barriers between like two different doors. There's a chute system at the center where all the enclosures connect via aerial chutes. Um, and so we can back them up against the door in a chute together and kind of observe their behavior. And at first we just sit and watch them and take notes and we kind of trade off and we watch for grooming behaviors and play behaviors, any sexual behaviors we might see um, or aggressive behaviors like, um, you know, quick pokes or um, pilo erection, you know, they get pilo just like dogs do. Um, They don't have it, where the hackles are, but they look like they have goosebumps all over them, um, which it kind of means the same thing as a dog. It just means that they're really aroused and um, it can definitely be negative. So we watch for things like that. And we take, um, we take a lot of notes. We have meetings about it. Um, we give a lot of enrichment so that they can be relaxed near each other. The same thing as dogs um, and stuff like that. And then eventually you just have to kind of cross your fingers and open that door, um, which was a scary thing because every once in a while, there's a couple apes that really like each other through the mesh. But once you remove that barrier, they kind of go at it. But when we let Louie in to see Allie, we had scattered Cheerios all over the floor and there was all these people stationed around so that if we could we could separate them if we needed to and everyone was nervous and Louie just walked in casually and stepped over Allie and was eating Cheerios. So it was very anticlimactic in the best way. Oh my God. <laughs> and oh it, my God. And the rest is history with those guys. I mean, they're, they're so happy. And Allie, I saw her yesterday too, and she just seems healthy and happy and, and Louie is just so sweet to her. It really is a, is a good match. <laughs> My God, I love it. I love it so much. And those of you who are listening who are dog pros, you're like, oh my God, this is literally like the exact same framework we would use for introdu- introducing dogs, which, you know, I think is just really good perspective and confirmation for all of you who are listening who are not dog pros, right? That like these... Thoughtful processes, slow introductions, positive reinforcement, they're universal, right? Like it's, you know, it's not exclusive that we're just like using these for dogs. Like they're universal, right? Like they literally work for a vast majority of the species on this planet. Absolutely. It really does come full circle. And I did have some experience training dogs before I started at the Trust. And so I knew kind of the basics of learning theory and the basics of positive reinforcement. 
I had some worked for some good guys and some bad guys uh, early on. Um, and it was amazing just how I could go ahead and implement that with apes once I once I got to know them. I mean, obviously, you have to build a relationship before you can even begin training an ape. But it's all it's all very similar. Learning theory is learning theory. The four quadrants are the four quadrants. <laughs> right. Okay. So can you speak a little bit more to that? So like the training that you did with the, the great apes, were there people that couldn't do training with specific animals because they didn't have that built up trust yet? Absolutely. Yeah. And we pretty much, especially at the sanctuary, there are a lot of apes and um, we were kind of assigned an area, assigned a certain group of apes that we would work primarily. And we just worked on building that relationship. So we were involved with all of their care. We did, we cleaned up after them. We fed them their meals. We gave them enrichment. Um, we build a relationship by playing with them, by uh, brushing, brushing their hair, all, all that stuff that they, they like grooming. Chimps love to groom. So that's a big one um, for those guys. And once they trust you, you can start to sit down and kind of, um, ask them for behaviors that they already know and, and work up from there as far as building new behaviors and behavior chains, stuff like that. But it, it's very important to have a good relationship with them. Otherwise, um, they're not, not, they're just not gonna cooperate. <laughs> right, right. And they shouldn't, right? Like, I think it's, it is such right. a, like, I think it's such like a human, like elitist mindset that we would just assume that like, every animal is just going to like engage with us and do what we want them to do. Right. Like do what they're told. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> That's and not I, the game at all. Yeah. And like, I mean, not to get too much off topic here, Jackie, but I know that you will like relate to this line of thinking. It's like, I feel like we've domesticated dogs, right. For a lot of that very purpose is we want to feel like we can go in and just make the dog do things and they will do it. Like that definitely has been an influence in the domestication process for better or for worse. I don't think we need to, to get into the ethics of that, but like it is something that we just assume. And I love so much that you have this beautiful perspective of a great ape is, does not subscribe to that, right? Like they don't know like the human elitist mindset. Like they're just animals who found themselves in a situation that we have to earn their trust in order to accomplish other goals. Yeah. And a lot of times, I mean, you, you can't even really be a much less a trainer. You can't really even be a caregiver without a relationship. Uh, you kind of have to shadow somebody in an area for, and be trained on the area and have the apes get to know you before you can even um, do things like hand them their food or um, shift them. So, Shifting is when we move them from area to area and we shut doors between them, which is actually a kind of a difficult behavior to train for some of the apes who have had bad experiences with doors. Um, and it's a little bit of a power move for them to sit in a doorway or slam a door or something like that. So um, that's a whole nother behavior that you have to train. And if the apes don't trust you or they don't like you, you just cannot do your job, <laughs> period. You've got to earn, you've got to earn that for sure. Oh my God. So Jackie, I imagine there was a level of humility that you had to come to terms with, like, especially like early on in your career in this. 
Absolutely. <laughs> right. Right. So, um, Jackie, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I, I, I have this question kind of ruminating because I imagine that the things that you learned in all of your work with the great apes probably influenced a lot of who you are even outside of working with them. Yes. Um, working with great apes for almost a decade, I feel like almost changes your perspective on everything, on humanity, on ethics, on where we fit into the world. Um, it really is a little bit, um, it, <laughs> It really is a little bit of a of a mind fuck, and I don't know if I can say that. Yes, you can. Not. We love profanity here on Disorderly Dogs. <laughs> but yeah, they make you think. I mean, they're they're brilliant, and they're they're just like us. Um, they're just different, and I think that about all animals now. You know, dogs are are brilliant in their own ways. They're way smarter than humans in a lot of different ways. They can what, smell cancer, you know, they can, I mean, it's insane. So to think that we are the end all be all of the animal kingdom, um, doesn't really, doesn't really sit right with me. So it did teach me to have that kind of respect for all species and, and just makes me really think about about where where it all where we fit into everything oh my god I love that perspective so much okay so Jackie do you want to tell tell the listeners just a little bit more about what you're up to now because now you're working with dogs you're working with pet dogs do you want to tell everybody kind of like what um inspired you to shift shift your perspective and work with dogs instead of great apes yeah I always have I've been interested in dogs and fascinated by dogs. And like I said, I did do some professional training before and a little bit during my career with apes. Um, I left Florida for a number of reasons. It was a really heartbreaking decision to have to make, but I have been a small animal vet tech uh, since then. And that's been about between six and seven years. Um, And so my brain has been a little bit more, more on dogs in general. I have always talked about being um, a professional dog trainer and thought about how I could get into that. And over the last couple of years, I've gotten a little bit more and a little bit more kind of obsessed with educating myself on the new techniques and the new philosophies, basically, of dog training. And um took Kim Brophy's course, which is absolutely um, fit into my perspective a lot about how to look at dogs in terms of um, them being a species of their own right and how they were bred and how they co-evolved with us through artificial selection and looking at the entire dog and not thinking of them as robots or babies and all of that. Um, I absolutely love that course and it it was extremely inspiring. And so I've taken a couple other certification courses and been educating myself. And um, there was a day where I just decided that I was going to go for it. So um, we're, lucky I, and being in, we're lucky to have you in the dog training. <laughs> being um, in the vet industry for so long too, has made me really passionate about husbandry training. And I would love to, 
specialize in that someday because, you know, I've been doing it with apes for so long. Um, you have to get really good at the mechanics of positive reinforcement training to train somebody that you don't have access to. Um, so I feel like I've got a good, a good feel for it. And I think that husbandry training is something that's really overlooked in dogs. Um, people don't, people don't think about that a lot. And, and to be honest, I do see a lot of just trauma, um, in the name of veterinary medicine. I don't blame the vets. Um, vets are awesome. There's a lot of pressure put on vets to get the job done. Um, so I think there needs to be a movement. I know that the cooperative care stuff is coming around and I love that. Um, but, um, people need to take a little bit more responsibility for, um, owning this captive animal and being responsible for all of its care, including its husbandry stuff. So I love husbandry training. I do it with my dogs almost every day. Um, my dogs are injection trained. I listen to them with stethoscopes. I trim their, they love having their nails trimmed, all that stuff. And it's all desensitization. It's all, it's all, um, basically exactly what I was doing with apes. So I think more people need to get into that. Okay. And Jackie, I love your perspective so much as a vet tech too. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in my experience, vet techs have to be the perpetrators of not great stuff at the vet, right? Because you come in, you got to restrain the dog, you got to get them vaccinated. And to your point, right? Like we are not throwing any vets under the bus because that would be absolutely ridiculous because they are doing the best that they can. But I think that the model of medical care for dogs is still kind of like, it's still kind of outdated. Is that an accurate way to put it? Yeah, I think that um, the idea that you have this job that you need to get done by basically any means necessary and um you're gonna restrain a dog that's never been restrained um and it's maybe gonna panic i think that we have a lot of these traumatizing situations that we throw dogs in can create behavioral problems down the line too you know you know how sensitive their little psyches can be and if you um really manhandle them uh, they're going to be insecure going forward about trusting people because that's a real violation of trust in humans. Um, and that that's just the job of veterinary professionals, unfortunately, is um, you get handed a dog you've never met and you have to trim its nails right then. And there's no other way to do it unless you sedate them. So I think a little bit of desensitization training could go a long way. And I think that that dog guardians could do a lot more of this type of stuff at home too. I think it's really intimidating to people and it doesn't need to be. I think if you can desensitize your dog to a nail trim, the actual mechanics of trimming dog's nails, it's really not that hard. Um, you know, you don't need to go all the way back to the quick. You can just take the tips off once a week and it can be a really fun game to play with your dog, a bonding exercise. Um, and then you don't have to go and um, take your dog and give them a bunch of trazodone and take your dog into the vet to get manhandled. And that makes the vets and vet techs lives easier, too. 
Oh my God. So Jackie, the listeners of this podcast know all too well, right? So Waylon's story is he was restrained as a youngster, had a very negative experience, and it took several years to build back up his confidence at the vet. And he recently consented to a blood draw, which I mean, I, I couldn't be more proud of like the time and energy we put in, but something that really struck me about the whole experience is that like the vet that we take him to, they're not like certified fear-free, nothing like that. They're just good people who want to do the best they can for, for the, their patients. And when I explained to the vet tech, like, Hey, this is how it's going to go. You don't have to restrain him. You just have to watch if he's consenting. If he's not, I'll tell you, we'll take a step back. And there were three vet techs and they were all just so elated that like, this is something that I actually trained and it worked in that moment, right? So I think everyone listening as dog guardians, we have this beautiful opportunity to teach our dogs these skills so that it doesn't have to be traumatic. And I think that that's going to have huge ripple effects in the industry, right? That like vet techs, veterinarians are seeing this happen and realizing that like there's small incremental changes we can make across the board to make sure that getting the dogs in our care, the medical care they need doesn't have to be this huge traumatic experience, right? If we can train great apes to consent in their care, there's absolutely no reason we shouldn't be doing it with dogs. I completely agree. <laughs> and the veterinary professionals don't want to have to do this manhandling either. You know, they really don't. If you walk in with a well-trained dog and and they know the dog knows what's about to happen and the vet staff can just creep in and give them a little exam, give them a little poke and not have to really handle the dog in that way. It is a win-win for everybody, including the dog. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God. Okay. So Jackie, do you want to just share with everybody a little bit more? I know you were saying that like, obviously husbandry behaviors and stuff like that is a passion for you in your business. Do you want to give the listeners just a little bit more of a sense of like some of the other, um, training um, challenges or behavior cases that you're taking on um, in your business right now? Um, I think like every uh, dog trainer right now, I get a lot of reactivity, a lot of reactivity cases. Um, So I do a lot of counter conditioning um, and that kind of work. Um, I've dabbled a little bit into some minor aggression uh, cases, um, those are getting, I think, harder and harder to avoid and been having some successes, uh, which is a good confidence boost. And, um, I, I also, another motivator for me to get into this was I ended up with my own aggressive dog that we have talked about. Um, and he's doing really well. (laughs) Um, but it made it, it was another inspiration to really educate myself on these kind of procedures And And it gives you that empathy, right? Like the empathy for your clients who are living day in and day out with a dog that you can empathize because you live with a dog who can behave aggressively sometimes too, right? Like I think as professionals, we can understand conceptually how to work through things, right? Like come up with really great behavior modification protocols. But I think sometimes just that empathy is also hugely helpful in how we serve our clients. Absolutely. I can really relate to, to people even better now that I'm going through it myself. And it's a, it's a really difficult, really emotional uh, ride to, to have a dog like this. And, uh, you know, he's, I, I just adore the hell out of this dog. Um, But for some reason, he just feels so unsafe 
sometimes that that he will lash out. So just making him <laughs> feel safe in his environment and know that I've I've got things covered is has been really important to him. And being able to kind of experiment with methodology with him and see where the progress comes in and really get a feel, a feel, a hands-on feel for this kind of stuff has really helped and been able to implement some of the stuff that I have that has worked with AZ um, and implement it with clients and see successes there has given me, you know, patterns that I have a lot of confidence in now. So it's all a confidence game, I think, up front. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. So um, I imagine that your mechanics and like thorough thoughtful training plans that you probably created with the great apes. I'm sure that that skill set is probably benefiting you a lot in like the pet dog work that you're doing now. Yes, I basically do the exact same thing as far as writing out plans and where where they need to be flexible and and stuff like that, just figuring out um what to follow, what not to follow, what to change, when to change it. Um, stuff like that. It, it's it's the same exact thing. A training plan is a training plan. It doesn't matter what what species we're using. God, oh my God, Jackie, this has been such an enlightening conversation, and I'm so glad that I was able to um, just learn more. Right, like obviously asking these questions and hearing your answers. It's one of those like, oh my God, of course, of course. But (laughs) I think that sometimes we get so caught up in like it being different, right? Like I know in the dog training world, there's so much emphasis on different breeds need different things. And I think that this conversation has been such good confirmation that that's really not true at all, right? Like, yes, different breeds are different, but that doesn't mean that like we can't continue to use the same ethical dog training or training generally that you use for a decade working with great apes absolutely obviously every individual is different and that is the case with individual apes and it's the case with individual dogs but the principles are the same across the board oh my god oh my god i love it okay so jackie i have one more question for you just because i need to know this what does playing with an orangutan look like (laughs) tell me more about this uh, there's nothing cuter than getting an orangutan to play because they are very stoic in general. Um, but you can kind of see them with the, the loose body language of they kind of relax and they bounce around. And I wish the listeners could see me imitate that behavior right now because it's really hard to describe. Um, but I, we, um, we tickle them. They laugh. They have a breathy laugh. Um, which actually is really interesting that I hear that in dogs. And I I don't know if that's a thing or not, that like <gasps> noise, hey, apes hey, do hey. it, we do it, dogs do it, and it is laughter. Um, and they will laugh, and we can tickle them on their little thighs. We can poke them with sticks to tickle them, um, and they will roll around and flop around. The young ones are like little rag dolls and they will just flop on the floor and flop on the floor. And they're just such a joy. And and it's funny because you really have to know them pretty well and, and just get, get there with them. And that moment when they decide that they're going to play with you, there's nothing like it. You're not going anywhere for a while. (laughs) 
Oh my God. I can like, literally, I can just feel the joy in you talking about it. Like what a beautiful, (laughs) what a beautiful thing to be able to share with another animal, especially one of that magnitude. Right. And if you look at pictures of orangutans, the males have those big cheek pads and the long dreadlocks, all that stuff is secondary sexual characteristics that come out at puberty. Um, but yeah, they're big. Oh they're big. Oh my God. I love it so much. Okay. So everyone, I will make sure that Jackie sends me at least one or two pictures so I can share these with you all. So you can have a little <laughs> bit more of a visual of the things that we talked about. And then um, I'm sure you have pictures of Poppy and Allie. Yeah. Jackie, would you be willing to oh, share yeah, that? Oh my God. I love it. I love it so much. Okay. So Jackie, can you tell everybody just a little bit more about, um, where they can find you and your training business, like your Instagram handle, website, things like that. Yes. Um, my Instagram is at HT dog solutions. Um, I'm not very good at it yet, but I'm trying to post more and more, uh, training videos, especially husbandry stuff with my own dogs. Um, I'm also at J mobs, J M O B Z Z. And uh, my website is linked on those Instagrams. And I also want to plug, if I may, the Center for Great Apes in Florida. Centerforgreatapes.org. It's a 501c3 nonprofit. If any listeners uh, want to give to a totally legit animal charity, these guys are doing it right. Every penny that comes in goes towards making the apes' lives the best they can be after being rescued from some uh, pretty crazy situations. So check them out. There's tons of cool photos of orangutans and chimpanzees on there, and it's just kind of fun to browse around to. So check them out. They're a really, really good organization. Uh, That's what I'm going to do as soon as this conversation is over. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. I know the listeners are really going to enjoy this episode. Thanks, Rachel. It was fun. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you need help with your dog's behavior, you can learn more about our training services at agoodfeelingdogtraining.com. We post training inspiration and training tips almost daily over on the Instagram at agoodfeeling underscore NCO. If you like this podcast, we would be so grateful if you could share it with a friend or family member who could benefit from all of the information. Um, It's been a total delight. We love this podcast so much. And thank you so much for listening to Disorderly Dogs.